We will be studying out of Matthew chapter 13 tonight. If you would, please get out a pew Bible. It's page 871 in the Bibles in the pew. I want to study the parable of the sower tonight. Anyone familiar with my preaching style knows that I can get tunnel vision to some degree. However, this parable is pretty all-encompassing and really isn't a tunnel vision kind of subject. There are lessons throughout the entire Bible that are addressing a specific audience or a specific problem, and this is one of the few places that the audience is pretty much everyone. I believe that everyone and anyone within earshot tonight will be spoken to specifically at one point or another. So let's go ahead and dig right in. Matthew chapter 13. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold some 60, and some 30. So which one are you? 
Have you ever read this scripture and thought about that? I want everyone to self-evaluate today based on all the information that we have in this parable. We have the explanation of the parable, so we should all be on the same page to some degree. Let me summarize the options. Are you someone here, this is option A, are you someone here today that has heard the word of the kingdom? Basically the gospel or simply you've been told by somebody that you need to attend church, but you don't understand why. You don't understand the gospel, the need for baptism, church doctrine, or even regular church attendance doesn't make sense to you. Option B, are you someone that is here today but won't be next week? Are you, some, are you someone that has received the word of God happily? Maybe you've studied the Bible with someone and have enjoyed it and seen the need for Christ in your life. Maybe you've been baptized and have been attending here, but now you're stumbling. Maybe because family members that don't agree with you or you have old habits that are hard to break. Or maybe you're not fully applying the scriptures to your life. The verse says, for when trial... For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Option C, you're someone that is attending here today that may have been here a while. Perhaps it's been a couple of years since you were baptized. Perhaps you've been here your whole life. As you evaluate yourself, you see that your priority is on the cares of the world. You evaluate yourself and you see that you have been unfruitful to the cause of Christ. Fruits can be weighed and measured. They are not abstract ideas or practices, they are accomplishments. Option D, you're someone that is attending here today, baptized into Christ, productive, fruitful, someone with a plan, someone that understands the word of God and understands that the scripture instructs us to share that with others. And you're actively doing so with measurable results. I hope you've put some real thought into which category you fit into. You need to make an honest choice and stick with it with one of these options that correctly describes you as we move forward with this lesson. I don't believe there is a fifth option to pick from. All of us fit into one of these four categories, so please pick one of the four and keep it in your mind as we move forward. So naturally, let's start with option A. Are you someone here today that has heard the word of the kingdom? Basically the gospel, or you've been told that you should attend church. But you don't understand why, you don't understand the gospel, the need for baptism, church doctrine, or even regular church attendance doesn't make sense to you. So option A, people, you're here today. That is an excellent step. There are so many people in my life that I wish were sitting in these seats here today. So many people that have had a bad experience with church attendance, people that don't believe there is a need, or people that maybe don't even believe that Jesus exists. Since you're here, that means that you've overcome one of these obstacles, at least to some degree. Maybe you've overcome some other obstacle. Maybe you're just here to get someone off your back. Whatever the reason is, you're here now, and I would ask you to please consider the next few thoughts carefully. Let's look at the verse again. Verse 18, therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. If this is the option that you pick today that best describes you, it's important that you know that the devil's number one priority is to keep you from ever understanding the word of God. 
In a lot of ways, you're probably the devil's favorite option. The devil is a huge advocate of ignorance. And I don't mean that offensively. The true definition of ignorance is simply to lack information or to not have been taught. That's the best place the devil can keep you. That requires the least amount of work on his part. If you don't even know about the Word of God, he has no concern that you're going to follow it. One step above ignorance is confusion. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. If God is not the author of confusion, then it stands to reason that the devil is. If he can't keep you clueless, being confused is the next best thing. If we look around us in the world, that's what we see is confusion. You see all these different church denominations, some huge, enormous, castle-sized churches, some teeny tiny one-room church houses. I believe Sawyer said there were 55 church buildings in Plainview alone, all of them practicing different things. Then if you look out in the world even further, according to Google, one source said that there are 45,000 different Christian denominations globally. Another source said 32,000. Another source said there's 4,300 different religions in the world. So that's 4,299 different religions from the one religion that has 45,000 different versions that can't agree with each other. Is that not the definition of confusion? Is that not just an absolute mess to have to sift through the moment you find yourself no longer blissfully ignorant, but rising up the ladder to a state of confusion? I say all this to get to a point. If you picked option A to describe you today, please pay attention. If you don't listen to anything else at all, listen to this. The devil's number one goal is to keep you ignorant, confused, and overwhelmed by the options of religions in the world today. 4,300 religions, 32,000 denominations, 45,000 denominations, 45,000 voices all blabbering at you at the same exact time. What is that? It's a distraction tactic, the devil's distraction tactic, to keep you so overwhelmed that you give up on the whole thing altogether. That's partly what Matthew 13 and 19 is stating. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. I would beg of you to not become overwhelmed or discouraged. I would beg of you that if you do not understand the word of God, Find someone here today after the sermon. It can be me. It can be many of the people sitting here beside you. I'm not the preacher here. I'm just the preacher here tonight. There are multiple different people that can sit down and study the Bible with you and show you why the devil is trying so hard to keep you from understanding the word of God. I just want to leave the option A people with a couple of scriptures before I move on. Plain and simply put, Mark 16 and 16 states, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. <clears throat> Baptism is the crucial step in the choice to follow Jesus. It's commanded by Jesus in order to accept the salvation that has been offered freely to everyone. But it's just one of the first steps. It's a symbolic death that shows that your old ways of life are done and you're a new person that's striving to follow Jesus. There, by necessity, has to be a change of lifestyle to follow God. 
Romans 6, starting in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us that were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. If you picked option B to describe you today, are you someone that is here today but won't be next week? Do you see yourself stumbling? You're someone that has received the word of God happily. Maybe you've studied the Bible with someone and enjoyed it and seen the need for Christ in your life. Maybe you've been baptized and attending here, but you're stumbling now because maybe family members don't agree with you or you have old habits that are hard to break. Or maybe you're not fully applying the scriptures to your life. The verse says he has no root in himself, but endures only for a little while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So what is the purpose of roots? To gather water and nutrients. So to make the parable work, if you're going to have spiritual roots, what would their purpose be? To gather information from the scriptures that can be applied to various issues, whether they be spiritual or even physical, and to gather uplifting support from the brethren. If you think that option B best describes you, that your spiritual walk is like a seed planted on the rocks, then our goal is to keep you heavily watered until you can get through the rocks and down to real soil. If you can recognize that option B describes you, then time is crucial. The emphasis needs to be on you to seek help, and the emphasis needs to be on us to offer that help. I understand where you're at currently. My spiritual walk felt like that for quite a while. While I'm naturally not a quitter, I'm also naturally stubborn and a slow learner in many ways. I feel like I kind of resided in option B for a while, just too stubborn to fail and fall away, but also too stubborn to move forward either. Trial and tribulation. That's the defining factor of this part of the parable. But the emphasis needs to be on the roots. The roots are simply Bible knowledge, Bible knowledge and application, actually putting to use what you're reading. Trial and tribulation is what causes someone to fail in this option, so that's specifically what we need to study on. The first thing that we need to recognize is that Jesus said this would happen. Matthew 10, starting in verse 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men... I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. When you read this, do you imagine Jesus with a crooked grin on his face just egging on division among families? That's not what he's stating here. He's just pointing out the facts. If you choose him, you're going to meet resistance from friends and family. 
It's just a fact. It's not something that Jesus is telling you to make happen. If you pick option B this evening and you really feel like you're in a state of trial and tribulation and you're about done even trying anymore, then the odds are really high that it has to do with your friends or your family that do not believe. See, every one of the followers of Jesus had this problem when Jesus walked the earth. They were all choosing him over something else, whether it was a position of power within the Jewish community or whether it was friends or family that did not believe on Jesus. They all essentially to endure, they all essentially chose to endure the trials and tribulations because they loved Jesus and his message more. In some ways, that's not really the case anymore. We have multi-generational Christians attending here tonight. Instead of like me, where I literally have no family on my side in the church, there's a large portion of young adults here that can't even find a potential spouse because they're all cousins. You know, that's a foundation and a network of support that's immeasurable. When your entire immediate family is a member of the church, you really don't understand what Jesus is saying when he says, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. If you picked option B to describe you, you probably understand that. When my dad, who is not a member of the church, found out that my wife was pregnant with our first child, within about 30 minutes of gradually escalating conversation, he grabbed me by my throat and slammed me up against a wall, yelling in my face that I was in the wrong church and I'm going to lead my family to hell. I'm sure that all of the option people here have a whole basket full of similar stories that they may be going through right now. Matthew 19, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. <clears throat> Look, it's hard to have to deal with these issues on a daily basis. Sometimes the answer is to leave. It doesn't matter who it is, a close family member or a distant acquaintance, if you have chosen to follow Jesus and they won't, specifically if they are causing you to fail in your endeavor to serve Christ, then this is the decision you may have to make. And the scripture states plainly that the result is a hundred times better in the end. One thing that has taken me years to understand is why close family are the ones that seem to resist the gospel the most. Jesus explains this in Mark chapter 6. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get all these things? And what wisdom is this which was given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And, not, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty works there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. 
Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Just to a small degree, Jesus shook the dust off his feet and left Nazareth. They were not going to receive him, so he moved on. It's a good example for us among our own relatives that sometimes we need to do the same thing. If you can live peaceably with your family that doesn't believe, that's great. That means that there's always a chance that they will choose to follow Jesus. I don't want anyone thinking that I'm saying to write off unbelieving family members. I'm only stating that it's perfectly scriptural to remove yourself from relationships that are detrimental to your service to God. So what's the alternative? You continue to struggle riding on the fence, trying to live peaceably with family members that don't support you and are actively trying to get you to fail? Answer me this before we move on. When you're under your own roof, what is noisier, your Bible or your family members that are causing you to be in a state of trial and tribulation? What's going to reach out and pull you towards them? Jesus through the Bible that sits on a dusty shelf or your angry family members or friends? The odds are set against you. That's why it's important to recognize the position you're in and act accordingly. I realize that I probably have created more questions than answers. I don't have enough time to cover this in the way it needs to be covered, and a sermon really isn't the way to get the help that you need that's specifically tailored to you. This is at best a plea to get you to seek the help of the brethren here instead of running the risk of falling away due to trial or tribulation Please reach out to someone here after the service, and we will do our best to get you the help you need. Moving on to option C and option D. Option C. You're someone that is attending here today that may have been here a while. Perhaps it's been a couple of years since you were baptized. Perhaps you've been here your whole life. As you evaluate yourself, you see that your priority is on the cares of the world. You evaluate yourself and see that you have been unfruitful to the cause of Christ. Fruits can be weighed and measured. They are not abstract ideas or practices. They are accomplishments. I struggled greatly with how to word this, but I can only beat around the bush so much till you have to get to the point. I believe that most of us here are the most susceptible to fit into this category. Now, when I say that, I'm including myself. See, there are a ton of sins in this category. I would say that this is by far the largest and broadest category that someone here could fit into. Let's read the scripture again. Now, he who has received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of, the, of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. When I read this, to me, this describes someone who is a member of the church who has been deceived by Satan. Deceit is multifaceted. There's not just one way to be deceived. Basically, anything it takes is what it takes. Pride is present in this category, complacency. Ignorance is still useful to Satan. Greed, obviously, covetousness. See, there are a ton of angles that Satan can use to make us unfruitful. See, fruitfulness is really the point of option C and option D. It's really the only distinction between the two. See, we will still sin, even in option D. We will have times that we are prideful. We will have times that we covet and times that we are complacent. 
But that's not what we're overtaken with. In order to move out of option C into option D, the only qualifier is that you must be fruitful. Fruitfulness seems to be a difficult concept to grasp sometimes. We act like it's an abstract principle that cannot be weighed or measured, when in fact fruit most definitely can be weighed and measured. In the parable, even, it was measured. Verse 23, But he who receives the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Look at the parable of the talents, even. It's the same exact concept. One, two, and five talents, and the profitable servant doubled their profits. For us to be considered fruitful for the cause of Christ, our fruit quantity must be greater than the seed quantity. That, by necessity, has to be measurable. So what specifically is the fruit that we are seeking, then? Saved souls. That's the entire currency of the New Testament. Getting souls saved and keeping them. So in order for you to confidently affirm that you are indeed in option D, that's that you are one who has received seed on the good ground, heard the word and understood it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, then let's weigh and measure your fruit. How many people have you baptized and kept in the church? Now don't bristle up on me. This is just the first question. We have a lot of things to cover. There are people in the audience that can boldly answer this question and say five people. 10 people, 20 people. That's fruit that can be measured. That is a tangible evidence that you have been a fruitful Christian. But I suspect that there are many people here that can say they've never baptized someone, myself included. In nine years, I can confidently say that I led one man to getting baptized, directly at least. So how else can we be fruitful for Christ then? Well, the end goal of saved souls has not changed. So if you cannot say that you've had a hand in it directly, then how have you aided it? See, this is where most of us can shine in so many different ways too. We all have things that we are naturally good at. All you have to do is instead of doing them for yourself, do them for the gospel. If you're a good cook who enjoys it, feed people in the name of the Lord. Feed new converts. Feed evangelists. Take a little money and a lot of skill and use that to fuel the people that are directly involved in spreading the gospel and baptizing people. In doing so, you're sharing in the production of fruit. That's you being fruitful. If you're good at manual labor, good with your hands and someone that enjoys it, instead of working for yourself, work in the name of the Lord. Take a little money and a lot of your skill and fix an evangelist's car. Help when the water heater goes out. Help a new convert fix a leaking faucet. In doing so, you're sharing the load in the production of fruit. That's you being fruitful. If you're good at making money, someone who can make the right deals and can often be in the, same, in the right place at the right time, someone who is a good businessman or whatever you do that has been shown to be profitable, Instead of doing it for yourself, do it for the Lord. If this is not a fruit that can be measured, then I don't know what is. In the Old Testament, you were required to give 10% to the temple. 
We don't have that commandment in the New Testament. We simply have a free will offering. Something that you individually purpose in your heart. With that being said, I would want to encourage you to give a percentage. I'm not advocating for 10% as a commandment. I'm simply saying that the scriptures use specific numbers on many occasions. We have discussed producing fruit 160 and 30 fold. We've talked about the one, two, and the five talents being doubled. And now we've mentioned in the Old Testament a specific 10% was used in finances, which is part of producing fruit. See, percentages are not prejudiced. In order to not muddy the waters, I'm not going to use 10% in my example. I'm going to use 11. Not a single person's 11% is bigger or smaller than anyone else's. The widow lady living on 20,000 years, 11% is the same exact level of sacrifice as someone living on 100,000 a year, 11%. Listen, if you're not an evangelist, if you don't spread the gospel, if you don't baptize, if you don't do acts of service for the Lord, if you can't cook, although we should always strive to do the things we can, the only thing that's left for you to do at that point is fund the people that are doing these things in the name of the Lord. That's all that you have left to show for yourself and to Christ that you are fruitful. If you think what you're contributing is a lot of money, then prove it to yourself. It's not about showing it to me or anyone else. It's about lying in bed at night and being able to have confidence that you're being fruitful for Christ. That's why I would encourage you to adopt a well-managed budget based on percentages. Now, I'm sure that someone thinks I'm preaching a works-only doctrine that we have to do enough good works in order to get into heaven. And that's not what I'm saying. Please follow along closely. I'm talking to the option C and the option D people. The people among the thorns or the riches and the cares of the world specifically, and the people in the good ground. Both classes are people that have been baptized into the blood of Christ to be saved. As D likes to put it, these are people that are on the boat. The only distinction between the two are fruitfulness. That's the only qualifier. That's what we were instructed to do. Produce fruit that can be weighed and measured. Some 100 times over, some 60, and some 30. This isn't an argument about grace or works only or what actually saves us. This is a specific, simple detail that shows whether you're in the good ground or you're among thorns. Consider this example. You have an arborist that's an expert on trees. You and this arborist are looking in an orchard, and he points at a tree and tells you that's an apple tree. You disagree because you don't see any apples on it. He patiently explains to you that the shape of the leaves show that it's an apple tree. Again, you disagree because you don't see any apples on it. He's starting to lose his patience and proceeds to tell you that the color and the texture of the bark plainly shows that this is an apple tree. Once again, you disagree because you don't see any apples on it. Now the arborist is fuming. He thinks you're ignorant, foolish, and begins to repeat himself angrily going on and on about the details of this tree that proves it's an apple tree. One final time, you just shrug your shoulders and say, you can't prove it to me because I don't see any apples. The problem is the roles are actually switched. 
Oftentimes, we are the arborist. We hammer our fist and say, look, full immersion baptism is what saves us. Look, a cappella only, no musical instruments. Look, a, plural, a plurality of teachers. We're pointing to all these key doctrines that are important and stating that we are the church that belongs to Christ. We need to ensure that there is no possibility that someone could say we can't prove it because we have no fruit. Matthew 7, starting in verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit and is, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter to the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's kind of comical in a little bit of a sick way, but honestly, if you have a tree that's genetically an apple tree that never grows apples, is it really an apple tree? If you're genetically a Christian, basically you've gone through all the right steps and motions, but you never bear fruit, are you really a Christian? It's not the works or the fruits that save you. It's the works and the fruits that show that you have been saved. You know, I struggled for a while with self-evaluation on my own fruitfulness. Preaching is not one of my favorite things to do. I certainly don't enjoy door knocking. I don't do well with evangelist-type work. I'm kind of a square peg in a round hole when it comes to social interaction sometimes. Callan tells me I have the finesse of a sledgehammer, and Jackson tells me I'm the physical embodiment of a cactus. <laughs> I think that people suspect that I'm trying to live up to their expectations, but the truth is I do try to be a more palatable person. Oftentimes, I fall flat on my face. With that being said, it's hard to have the confidence in your fruitfulness if you don't feel like you're suited for evangelist-type work. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. This is Paul speaking. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphrodites the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Do we know the names of the people that sent Epaphroditus to bring aid to Paul? No, we don't. Do you know what's written about them, though? That it was fruit that abounded to their account. A sacrifice that was well-pleasing to God. We don't know their names. They weren't specifically preaching here. They weren't evangelizing. They weren't baptizing people. They were simply funding and supporting those people who were and it was fruit acceptable to God. As we start to wrap things up, I want to remind everyone here that you are one of these four in the parable. You are someone by the wayside who has heard the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, and the devil is going to come and snatch away what was sown in your heart. Or you are someone in the stony places who has received the word of God with joy, but you have no root in yourself. And you're going to endure for a little while until tribulation or persecution causes you to stumble and fall away. Or you are someone among the thorns who has heard the word and the cares of this world 
and the deceitfulness of riches are choking you to a point where you're unfruitful. Or you are someone who has heard the word and understood it, who bears measurable and tangible fruit, a hundredfold or sixty or thirty. If you haven't done it yet, I will ask you one last time to please pick which one you are. If you're one of the first three, please come to the front row during the invitation song. You're not stuck in one of these classifications. These things are not unchangeable until you refuse to change them. If you won't come during the invitation song, then please come privately after the service. I will do whatever I can to help you get the help you need, even if it's just leading to you to someone more capable than myself. If you need to be baptized, if you're one of the first three people that Jesus spoke of in this parable, or if you need the prayers of the church for any reason, please come and sit on the front seat as we sing. <laughs>